question this morning. Just ask you, how, how is your joy today? How's your joy? Margie's here with us, huh? And I don't, I don't mean just like, are you in a happy mood? Although, like, awesome if you're in a happy mood, that's fantastic. What I mean is something a bit deeper. Like in the base of your being, is there an okayness? Is there a peace? Is there an, a hope? How is your joy here this morning? I think about maybe one of the happiest, most joyful moments in world history is perhaps May 8th, 1945. And this is VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day. And this was celebrated all over the world as Germany surrendered on all fronts on this day. And the war, World War II, had been going on for six years. Six awful, brutal years. And millions had died. Millions had died in this fighting. Such a cost. And people knew this was a fight for freedom. People knew this was a fight for the value of human life. So when Germany surrendered, people deeply felt gladness. I have images here of this day. This is a photo of Times Square in New York City. Just Nobody planned this. Since this day, the news is announced and spontaneously people come out on the streets to celebrate full of joy. In London, they were dancing on the streets during the day in such gladness. Later that night, the party didn't stop. They kept dancing. They even had a conga line, right? They did conga lines apparently back in the 1940s. Love that. That's going strong still. So much celebration even down in France, the Arc de Triomphe, thousands again, not just in the U.S., Great Britain, in France, thousands out on the street celebrating. And people even threw feasts out in the middle of the street. Look how happy these kids are, right? And you're just going to bust out tables, get out some food. We're going to sit out in the middle of the street because this is a public moment of celebration and joy that we're all sharing in. And clearly, they weren't celebrating like this because it just happened to be a beautiful day on May 8th, right? But they're not just mixing it up and got a little bored. They all knew deeply why they were celebrating. From the heart, they were all glad because they knew the cost that had been given those last six years. And they also knew what joy this peace was going to bring. So from the gut, understanding the implications of this victory, people were spontaneously led into celebration. And here we are on Easter morning. Here we are on Easter morning. And we know this is a time for joy and celebration, but I know that often the gladness of Easter can be lost. We can miss it. There's a lot of different reasons behind this, but I think the challenge for us is to connect the real meaning of what happened with Jesus 2,000 years ago to our life today. Even if we believe historically Jesus was actually raised from the dead in a physical body, we get that. What's that mean for me today? You didn't have to tell people in Europe or in New York or anywhere else in the world the significance of Germany surrendering. They deeply knew it from the gut. This changes my life, and I can't help but celebrate in response. This is what we need. So from Christians 
non-Christians, if you're here exploring what it means to know Jesus, sometimes we miss out on the gladness of the resurrection. So this morning, simply, I just want to look at what does Jesus being raised from the dead mean for us? (laughs) Why does that lead us into dancing and singing and celebration? So we're going to look at what does this mean? Why does it lead us to joy and to deep gladness? going to look at a passage here from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I have this on slides for you if you don't have a Bible, but if you do, would love it if you'd open up there with me. This is where we're going to spend our time here this morning. This is written by Paul to a church telling them about the significance of Jesus being raised from the dead. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 20. It says this, but But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You say here at King's Cross, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You see, first of all, Paul's making it abundantly clear that the resurrection is not a side peripheral issue. It's not a bonus that Christians tag on to Jesus' life and death. And hey, wouldn't it be great if he rose from the dead? Paul is making it clear the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin. Everything hangs on this. And that's why he says our faith is futile. It's useless. It's hopeless unless Jesus has been raised from the dead. Let me just read this one more time, verse 17 of what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Because of the extraordinary claim of the resurrection, This is stunning enough. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Not, hear me, not just resuscitated, not just that he died and then was brought back to life and that he will one day die again. That's not what we're proclaiming. It's that Jesus has been resurrected into a new physical body full of glory that will never be submitted to death ever again. He is raised to new life. That's the resurrection. Because of this extraordinary claim, many people throughout history have tried to make the resurrection more appetizing and understanding, understandable to our reason and our intellect. 
And so they say that Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead in a physical body. The disciples made up this story to spiritualize the ongoing influence of Jesus spiritually on them. So, so they're using the resurrection to symbolize how Jesus' life and his teaching continued on to have impact. He was still living, if you will, through his words and through his impact on their lives. You see this. Paul is having none of this. He's saying this view is absolutely nonsense. If only for this life we have hope in Jesus, we are most to be pitied. And what, what Paul is making clear, he's saying, why would you pick up your cross and follow Jesus? Why would you deny yourself hoping to find life in him when he can't even give life to himself? Why would you believe in Jesus for this beautiful hope that he would give us the very spirit of God in our living being? He would give us the spirit of God if he has no authority to send him. He's still in the grave. Why would you make Jesus your savior and your guide if he's still dead? He can't hear you. He can't save you. There's no hope in following Jesus if he has not been raised. Do you see this? Just consider with me how important this is, the forgiveness of sins. This is central to our hope as Christians. And here, this first point for us that the resurrection is showing us in joy. The resurrection confirms we are forgiven. The resurrection confirms we are forgiven. And if Christ is not raised, see what Paul says again here in verse 17. Makes it very clear, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins. This should make us pause. This should be a bit confusing if you have been around scripture or heard the church and the sermons before. This should be strange and strike us as odd. Because the whole story of Scripture says again and again that forgiveness of sins only comes through a payment. That the one doing the forgiveness takes the cost on themselves. And that's why God shows again and again there must be a sacrifice, a payment, a death, the shedding of blood for there to be forgiveness of sins. This is tied all the way through the story of Scripture. So you start with Adam and Eve in the garden and their rebellion against God. And right away we see an animal is slain so that they might be clothed. Or again, when the people of Israel are in Egypt and there's a judgment coming over Egypt to slay the firstborn in every family, God says, if you will, kill a spotless lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, this angel of death will pass over you. Or again, on the day of atonement when the people of Israel were wandering in the desert, God showed them one day a year you will make a sacrifice and the high priest will take that blood into the very holy of holies of my presence to make atonement, to make 
payment for the sins of my people. Again and again and again, we see that sacrifice payment is needed for sins and death. That's what makes it so shocking when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What John means is, here is the man who will be the sacrifice for the sins of all of the world, that we might know forgiveness. Here's where it's stunning when Jesus is on the cross, as we saw last week, and the words he first says as he's crucified, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Again and again and again throughout Scripture, we see that forgiveness is tied to the death of Jesus. But now here, now here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying, even if Christ has died for our sins on Friday, unless he is raised from the dead on Sunday, we're still dead in our sins. You see the shock of this? How could this be? Wouldn't it still count for us? Consider how much we're left in uncertainty if Christ was not raised. Consider what a lack of assurance we have if Christ was crucified and he was still in the grave. We would be here this morning and we would have to wonder, did it work? He cried out, it is finished on the cross. Was it? Did God accept this payment on our behalf? What if Jesus is just another man? What if Jesus is just another victim of Roman power? What if Jesus is just another sinner like us and that death on the cross did nothing and we're here celebrating for no reason? Take it in this way. It's, it's almost like someone would have written us a check for a million dollars. Like, man, what an amazing gift. What a prize to have. And you take this check to the bank to cash it, put it into your account, but you are told this check bounced. That person did not have these funds in their account. There's no transfer. There's no wealth. You might have had a piece of paper saying you had a million dollars, but there was no wealth backing that up. So the same way, if Jesus died on Friday, but was never raised on this Sunday, what we're saying, the check bounced. Redemption was not paid. We are still dead in our sins. The payment was not accepted by God. But this is the whole joy, hear me, of this morning. That we are here to say, Friday was not the end of the story. That praise God, he did in fact raise Jesus from the dead on Sunday. And this tells us the payment was accepted for you and I that we're no longer dead in our sins. That Jesus, God rather, is saying to all of us, to all of creation, he's giving this stunning statement through the resurrection. Christ is enough. His death, it is finished. Death has been buried. Christ is raised. It's a proclamation of the victory of God. And we're not left wondering. We're not left in doubt. We know Jesus is enough for us. And he's now reigning. I'll see this hope. Jesus was not another victim. Jesus was not just another man. He's the God man. And he was crucified for us. 
and it shows that yes, Jesus has died for us and he has been raised to new life. And so also we are no longer dead in our sins, but we are welcomed into newness of life in Jesus. You see the hope we have this morning? Our faith is not futile. We're not living in blind ignorance. We have our hope in the real resurrection of Jesus. That's where we're planted and grounded. But we're just getting started here this morning in our reasons for joy. So first of all, the resurrection confirms we are forgiven. Secondly, here's good news. The resurrection confirms the defeat of death. The defeat of death. Luke Ferry, he is a a philosophy professor at the University of Paris, and he's not a Christian, and he talks about how death is the common enemy for all of us. And Luke Ferry, he he points out that actually a lot of uh, ancient writers talked about death in a way that was trying to say we can just welcome death. We don't need to be afraid. It's a natural part of life. But Luke Ferry points out this is actually not a very realistic view of how death is our enemy. Instead, he writes here, death is not as simple an event as it is ordinarily credited with being. It cannot be merely written off as the end of life, as the straightforward termination of our existence. On the contrary, death has many faces, and it is this which torments man. For only man is aware that his days are numbered, that the inevitable is not an illusion, and that he must consider what to do with his brief existence. And Luke Ferry continues, not just is death death inevitable, but it is also irreversible. It it makes life unrepeatable. So even as we go through life, we experience many little deaths, he says. Things that can't be repeated, that are lost forever. So those joyful childhood memories of vacation with your families. Maybe the tearing apart of your parents' marriage. Maybe the leaving of a house or a school where you have wonderful memories. You're experiencing a little death as something can't be reversed and it can't be repeated. And he says all of this is just drawing up to our one great irreversible enemy, death itself. And that we all have to live knowing this is coming for our life. But hear me, what what does Christianity speak into this? What does the hope of the resurrection bring? Look what Paul writes again in verse 20 of chapter 15. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. By saying firstfruits, Paul's clearly using a harvesting metaphor. He's saying that Jesus is not a unique, one-off resurrection never to be repeated. Rather, he's the firstfruits. He's the first installment of a much greater harvest that is about to come. He's just the one promise-showing example. This is what is about to happen to all who belong to me. They also will be raised. So we're seeing in the resurrection this hope that if Christ is raised from the dead, those who trust in him and belong to him will also be raised to new life. This is an incredible hope. It tells us that death is a defeated enemy and no longer has power over us. It tells us that death is not the end of our existence. It's a doorway into something new and spectacular. 
I love how C.S. Lewis, in his amazing series called The Chronicles of Narnia, he draws this out in his last book, this image of death as a doorway. As these children, these heroes through the books, they come to the end of their time in Narnia, and they're called to walk through this door. And C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, this was only the beginning of the real story. This is beautiful. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover of the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. So Luke Ferry's very right. The resurrection doesn't mean we're repeating this life. It doesn't mean we go back and live this life all over again. C.S. Lewis is drawing out, no one wants to read the same title page over and over again. What we're ending in this life is we're turning over the cover page and we're about to enter into the one great story that we've always been longing to live. And the death is a defeated enemy and a doorway into this spectacular life. I think it's beautiful how C.S. Lewis didn't just make this up for children. He lived this. And he, he spoke this to others for their comfort in the midst of their own death or for loved ones who were dying. He, he wrote a letter to a friend and he said this, can you not see death as the friend and deliverer? It means stripping off that body which is tormenting you, like taking off a hair shirt or getting out of a dungeon. Well, what is there to be afraid of? Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. And don't you think our Lord says to you and to all of us, peace, child, peace. Relax, let go. Underneath are the everlasting arms. That's for this reason, Paul writes, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? You are a defeated enemy and no longer have grip or hold over us. This is what Christianity is beautifully proposing to us. That death is not something we need live in fear of. Death is a defeated enemy. It's, it's not an eraser that's going to slowly smudge and erase our entire life, every relationship and meaning and significance that we've had here it's rather just the beginning, the turning of the cover page. Death is a defeated enemy. Praise God. It's hard not to hear this, isn't it, without thinking of loved ones in some sense? How this changes our hope as Christians? Paul says this again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, a really well-known passage. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I know someone that lost their mother back when they were in college. And while they were at the funeral in the church, they had a number of people come up to them in the midst of their grieving, and they were quoting part of this verse. But as they were quoting it, they made it sound like, you shouldn't be grieving at all. You shouldn't have any grief. And this person was really disturbed by that because they were deeply missing their mother. They're really torn apart about losing her at such a time in their life. And now it's felt like, are Christians just not supposed to grieve at all? And that's clearly not what Scripture is calling us to, or even the example we have in Jesus. It says when Jesus came to a funeral, 
for a friend, says Jesus wept. Jesus entered into the grief of those around him. And he's stunningly doing this, knowing he's about to raise the guy from the dead that very same day. It's like, Jesus, if anyone should be here, like, everybody, cheer up. It's going to be fine. I've got this, right? Let's all be happy. It's all going to be okay. Just give me a couple more minutes. That's not what Jesus does. He enters in and he weeps with those who are grieving, though he knows he's about to raise him from the dead. Why, Jesus? Why are you doing this? I think Jesus does not underestimate death. I don't think Jesus takes death lightly at all. I think it fills him with grief. I think it fills him with anger, what death does to his world and his creation. And I think he also grieves the separation in our relationships that he knows was never meant to be. Whether for three days or three decades, he grieves with us in the midst of our grief. I think Jesus knows what 1 Thessalonians is saying. Is it's not that we don't grieve at all. It's that we don't grieve like the rest of the world. We still grieve because we love people and they're not with us anymore. But we grieve as those with hope that we know that this is not the end of the story and I have dear loved ones that are no longer with me, but I look forward to the day when I will see them again raised and the king will come in power to raise us all from the dead. This is the hope of being a Christian. This is the stunning statement that death does not have the final word. It's not the end of our story. It's not the end of their story. This changes everything. So let me miss a loved one, but I also know deeply in hope this is not the end of their life. Oh, we will stand before a throne and we will be glad together in Jesus. Our heart doesn't stay in grief, does it? I want to ask again, how is your joy this morning? I'm going to invite the band to come back up here for us to sing. I want to sit in this a little bit longer as well. There's a reason Christianity is a singing of faith. One writer named Christopher Watkin, he draws out beautifully that other religions, they have chants, they have meditations, but truly Christianity is unique in its emphasis on happy, joyful songs. It calls us to come together, shout mountains, let's go forests, all you trees, we're about to sing together in joy. It calls us to celebration. Because in Christianity we're told, as Watkin writes, this superabundance, this overflowing grace that we have in Jesus, this union we have with him, we're, we're together with Christ and because he has been raised, we will be raised. So we're called to happy, joyful song. And hear me in this. Christians are not singing because we're naive. Christians are not supposed to sing because we just have this blind optimism that everything will work out. It's not because we think pain is an illusion. None of those things. Scripture makes very clear that we will have trials of various kinds all through life. That you're going to experience grief that may feel like it could bury you troubles that are absolutely overwhelming, questions about God and where are you that tear at the very fabric of your being. This is what we're told to expect in some level through the story of Scripture. But we have hope. 
We see Christ is on the cross, and so it shows us there's no blind optimism. There's no naivety that there will be no suffering. But at the same time, we're not left in cynicism. We're not left to be pessimistic, and we're not left to be without hope because we also see Jesus raised from the dead three days later. And so here's my life, here's my hope, here's my joy. I won't stay in these dead places. I will be glad because I know my Lord is raised. And I know what that means for me now. I'm not dead in my sins. And I'm not a slave to death anymore, praise God. So beautifully, the gospel, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection... It should keep us as Christians as being naive in hope about life here. Yet at the same time, it keeps us from being hopeless and cynical. It calls us into a right-eyed, clear joy because of who God is. Do you see this? So in this, would you pray with me here at King's Cross? Lord, what a delight we have in you. Oh God, what a joy we have in you. And it's amazing to think how sad this would be to follow you, Jesus, if we believed you were still in a grave, if you were just an amazing teacher and example. But thank you, Lord, that that's not the promise we have in you. That instead you're saying, I am the resurrected King. And I'm now sitting at the right hand of the Father in power. And I will one day come again. And I will resurrect all of you to new life in me. Lord, help us sit in that joy. Help us sit in that gladness and truly praise you from the heart. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Again, we invite you, if you're able, to stand and to sing with us. This song's called A Living Hope, and it has us sit for a while in a bit of a slower singing and remembering the weight of life in Jesus' death on the cross. But it's going to bring us into a place of that morning, morning and Jesus' body that began to breathe. So sing this out. Focus on these words and the hope we have in Christ.